0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Lindsay Adario, a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer whose work is collected in the new book of Love and War. Adario has photographed countries as varied as Afghanistan, Libya, and Sudan, and many of the pictures in her new book are from war zones. The book itself also includes her letters and journal entries, many essays by journalists she worked with, as well as interviews with Adario herself about her own work and life. Together, it represents a grand look at a number of the wars and conflicts of the past two decades. Lindsay Adario joins me now from London. Hi, Lindsay.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing the program.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been
0: flipping through this book the last few days and looking at the photos and reading the essays and so on. Um, it's pretty stunning the way the book is put together. Why did you include love in the title, given what a lot of these photographs are about?
1: Well, I think while there are many images um, from war zones and that depict the horrific things that happen in war, there are also pictures of beauty and pictures of the quiet moments. Um, And I think it's important to understand that within the contradiction, um, you can find sort of both. You can find uh, those two elements and, most of the situations I cover as, as sort of odd as it seems, you know, for me as a, a visual artist and as a storyteller, I'm always looking for, uh, the layers of a place or the nuances of a situation. And so I thought, you know, when I go to a war, I don't only see the horrible things. I also see these, these beautiful moments and I sort of fall in love with the place and I fall in love with the people and the places I cover.
0: Did you get into photographing war zones and conflicts by wanting to be a journalist who covered these events or via photography? You wanted to photograph something and this is kind of what you ended up spending a lot of your career on. What was the process?
1: It was definitely the latter. I never sort of set out to be a war photographer at all. Um, I I wasn't even really familiar with photojournalism growing up. I, was, um, I started photographing as a hobby when I was about 11. And after I graduated University of Wisconsin at Madison, I moved overseas to Argentina to learn Spanish. And while I was there, I started becoming aware of pictures in the newspaper and how you can tell stories with images. And at that point, I was photographing more and more. And I realized that I could sort of use my camera as an excuse to not only travel around the world, but to meet people. And it became sort of my introduction into people and into scenes and places that I wouldn't otherwise feel comfortable going without some sort of excuse. And so really, I just started following my curiosity and um, my interest in cultures and travel and, and just started traveling more and more. And war still wasn't really on my radar at all. Um, I would look at books by other photojournalists, and, and there were books in there by Jim Noctaway, Antonine Cotocville. Um, there were, there were various, various, uh, photojournalists that I was looking at, some of whom were war photographers, but some were Sally Mann, uh, Mary Ellen Mark, other just women photographers doing daily life. And, uh, in 2000, I moved to India and I started covering South Asia. And at that point, I um, had a roommate who was working in Afghanistan under the Taliban. And he suggested that I sort of look into covering women's issues in Afghanistan under the Taliban. And that was really my first introduction to going to a country or a place that had was rife with war and that, was, that had sort of survived already uh, a few decades of war.
0: You say something, um, just before we get to Afghanistan, you say when you, I guess this is from the time that you were covering India, uh, one of the early um, journal entries from the book, Uh, I guess this is probably the late 90s. You say, quote, there are very few times in my life when I actually want to be on the other side of the camera. But today, as I walk through the the trenches of the Indian Army side of the line of control between India and Pakistan, I thought to myself that I ought to be able to rekindle this moment in years to come. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, look, this that was in 2000. And that was the first time I had ever been um, to a front line. Uh, and of course, I was not really at the front line. I thought I was, but I was really far back. I mean, the Indian Army took me to one of their positions. But now, given my experience, I understand that I wasn't really very far forward at all. But I felt like it was something... Um, I knew in that moment I was doing something that might determine the rest of my life. Because when I was there, I realized this is something I might want to continue doing because I felt the importance of being there in that particular position to document what was happening. And I. so I guess when I said this is one of the times I want to be on the other side of the camera, I felt like I wanted for lack of a better word, a selfie, (laughs) Um, even though they didn't exist at that time. This is 18 years ago. But I wanted an image of myself that young and wide eyed and really experiencing something for the first time that that I might continue to experience.
0: So what made you, you you alluded to this? What made you wanted to go and cover Afghanistan under the Taliban?
1: So I talked about my roommate who suggested I go, but I think beyond that it was just that we I had read so many articles by John Burns in the New York Times and by others talking about the horrific situation and oppression of women living under the Taliban. And I was 27 years old and I was curious. There was a question that I really felt like I needed answered. Is their situation as bad as we think it is or what do they think? You know, what do they think of their own situation? And I think I realized in that moment the only way to actually be able to answer that question would be to go there, to go there and ask them themselves, you know, instead of projecting our own values onto a culture and and onto a group of people, why don't I just go and talk to them about their lives? And so it seemed like a very basic thing, of course. And of course, when you're younger, things seem so much easier. Um, and so I was able to get a visa, uh, to enter Afghanistan when it was under Taliban rule. And that was thanks to Kathy Gannon, who was the AP Bureau Chief in Pakistan at the time. And she f- helped me, uh, sort of navigate how to get in, how to operate, how to, to, how to work as a woman, what to wear. Um, and really gave me a few contacts on the ground. And then, um, Ed Lane, who was the initial person who talked to me about the situation for women there, um, he also gave me some contacts of UNHCR and a landmine organization, and I was able to establish some contacts and go and really meet with people and, and and really see and and listen to their thoughts and to see the reality on the ground rather than to sort of project what it might be like.
0: Well, so just um, – I think a lot of people just have no idea what, what that would be like. Just what is your average day in Afghanistan – doing these types of photographs, a lot of them of women. Where are you living? You get up in the morning. Where are you staying? What do you do? Like, just give give us what an average day would look like.
1: Okay, so this is in 2000. And at that point, this is before September 11th. So this is before, basically, there were no other foreign journalists in the country at the time when I went. And there was uh, TV was illegal. All forms of entertainment were illegal. Photography of any living thing was illegal. I was a single woman without a husband operating under the Taliban, which meant they literally had to assign me a man to walk around with me outside of the hotel because a woman couldn't walk around alone at that time. Uh, there was a curfew from sundown to sunrise, so I had to be inside of wherever I was staying. And initially, um, I stayed at the AP Bureau, the Associated Press Bureau in Kabul, and that was run by Amir Shah, who um, started his career as a taxi driver and became a great journalist with the Associated Press. And he, um, I was staying in one of the rooms in their house uh, in Kabul. And so I stayed there for a few days. I went out into the provinces. I went to Ghazni, Logar, Wardak, very different places all across the countryside of rural Afghanistan. And then when I went back to Kabul, I had to check in with the foreign ministry. And at that point, the foreign ministry decided I was a woman and I could not stay in a house Uh, Where there was a man who was not my husband. So they ordered me to go stay in the Intercontinental Hotel, which uh, half of the hotel had been mortared and was completely falling apart. It was crumbling. Uh, There was no electricity. It was generator run. And the entire lobby of the Intercontinental, which, which sat sort of perched on this hill on the outskirts of Kabul, uh, was full of Taliban fighters and soldiers who just sort of milled about in the lobby. And of course, I was the only guest in the whole hotel because there were no other foreigners and no one else visiting Afghanistan at that time. So I was put in this room where essentially I was locked in there from sundown to sunrise and there was I went through my first book very quickly, and basically the only other books to read were about uh, Islam and the Quran, And so um, I just sat in my room sort of without anything to do and without anything to read Uh, And I kept going downstairs to the bookshop in the hotel and sort of wondering if more books might appear, which, of course, very little was getting in and out of Afghanistan at that time. And so eventually, sort of on my, I don't know, maybe the fifth time going down there, the bookstore owner started showing me some books that he wasn't really allowed to keep on the shelves. And so then I started reading uh, books and books. And in the morning, I would wake up uh, before dawn and be out the door right as sun, as the curfew was lifted, and try and photograph. Now, like I said before, photography was illegal. So I had permission to photograph destroyed buildings. Um, UNHCR had provided me with a driver and a sort of translator at the time. And we drove around the city, and I would sort of secretly, surreptitiously try to sneak photos of women and walking through the destruction, because at that point it was... Kabul was really falling apart. And if that was not possible, I was always looking out for uh, Taliban police, the vice and virtue, um, who could come and arrest me if they saw me photographing any living thing. And then I was going into the women's hospitals and into people's homes because as a woman I was able to get into these private spaces and that those places were places where the Taliban would not go because they were all women. And that's really where I was able to photograph more extensively.
0: So this is in 2000, I guess you, you were saying, and then um, – or two thousand early 2001, and um, then obviously 9-11 happens. The American invasion of Afghanistan happens um, several weeks after that, and kind of the state of women in Afghanistan becomes a big political issue in the United States and um, – one of the things that is sort of talked about as a reason for, for the war, not the reason that the war happened, but as a sort of uh, secondary benefit of the war among people who are in favor of it. And what did you feel when when that became a bigger political issue? And did you think that, well, I'll just leave it, leave it there.
1: So I think one of the things about, you know, one of the things that people don't realize about being a photojournalist and a journalist is that we have to have Um, we we have to sort of be ahead of the curve. We have to try to get to stories before they become this huge story. So this was a, a case in point. This was a great example of a situation where I had a lot of experience working in Afghanistan. I made three trips under the Taliban before September 11th happened. So when it happened and everyone started asking me to do those stories about women in Afghanistan, I felt like I had some knowledge already of the culture and the cultural norms and how women lived and and really what they felt because I had done, you know, when I go in, I don't only photograph, I do really extensive interviews with a lot of the people that I, that I photograph. So I had a very good sense of sort of where they were at. And one thing that um, I remember when the war was going on one of my editors said so so when the taliban falls i want you to take a picture of a woman throwing off her burqa and i sort of just said no i mean that is the most ridiculous thing like women this is a this is a very very conservative devout culture women cover themselves they feel comfortable this is not you know yes the burqa was imposed on some women but they're the minority a lot of women this is this is culturally how women are and and so I said no I mean I I really and I think it's important also that I was able to do that with experience under my belt because had I never been to Afghanistan before I probably would have said okay that's a great idea because not knowing that that wouldn't really happen
0: What is the place that you have been to and started photographing and then felt in hindsight or while you were doing it that the fact that you didn't know enough about the place that you were at sort of um, at least initially may have limited your ability to do the kind of photographic journalism you wanted? I mean, I think all journalists have have stumbled on stories where they feel like they're, you know, they're drowning because they don't quite get it. Um, Has that happened to you in any Country you've traveled to?
1: I mean, I think it happens every time I go to a country for the first time. You know, I think that um, I can do a lot of research and I can read and try and be and and try to be prepared. But I think the reality is when I get on the ground things are always different uh, from the ground than they are from the outside. And I think I always have to learn how to navigate not only photographically, but culturally, how to be culturally sensitive, how to deal with people, what the boundaries are, what what um, my boundaries are photographically as well. How close can I get? Do people feel comfortable being photographed? You know, I think one of the reasons why I like going back to countries over and over is because I like – To start to feel familiar with a place, I like to start to feel like okay, I can get in deeper now. And I think often the first time I go to a place, I don't really feel like I can penetrate a country that well um, until I've been there for you know once or a few times, or I've spent an extensive period of time. You know that also can change depending on the local journalist I'm working with or the fixer, um, as they're often referred to. You know, sometimes you have these incredible, incredible people on the ground who just open the world to you. And none of our stories, you know, I think it's really important to note that none of the stories I do would be possible without the people I'm working with.
0: I thought reading your book um, about that specifically, uh, President Trump this week made some comment about Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident and journalist who appears to have been killed in the consulate in Turkey, um, that he was not an American, uh, even though he uh, was a columnist at the Washington Post and contributed to American publications. And um, one thing that you sense reading your book or that you know reading your book is that – Journalists, even those who are not American, uh, who are contributing to American publications. The, essentially, I, I should say that that uh, the journalism we see in American um, publications is is supported uh, constantly by. Uh, journalists from other parts of the world and uh, even if they're not American citizens. Um, So I just thought I would I would mention that.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it does not matter if you are American or not. If you are a journalist and you are and you are reporting on a story and you are doing something for the greater public knowledge and providing a record of the events going on and the injustices and and uh, the oppression, you know, even if you are seen as a dissident, he was a journalist. The fact is, he was a journalist, he was a well-respected, well-known journalist, and I think with all of the rhetoric that President Trump unfortunately has been going on about fake news and journalists are the enemy of the people, that he's giving license to these other governments to treat journalists as if they can make them disappear without any repercussions. And it's really heartbreaking and it's really disgusting actually because I myself have been abducted twice. I've been, I've had guns put to my head. I don't know how many times. Um, I've been thrown out of a car on a highway. I have almost died doing this job a countless number of times. And I think to watch Trump not look at the facts in this instance, to send someone like Pompeo to Saudi Arabia, who's all smiles reading meeting with the crown prince and to say, I don't want to discuss the fact is is an absolute offense to anyone who has risked their life or anyone who does journalism as a profession.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, it's it's not. It's not whether someone is an, is American. It's the fact that journalism is a profession that is an international project and um, solidarity about it is important.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter if a person's American. We're all you know, we're all equal. It's not like Americans are better than anyone else. We all do the same job.
0: I, I want to briefly ask you about those times that you were abducted, um, because this is this is also connected to what you were saying about Jamal Khashoggi. Um, in one of the times that you were abducted, I think this was in Libya where you mentioned this in the book, that you say that the most important thing if you're a journalist is um, in a war zone or a place where you could be abducted or in danger is that the publication you're working for has your back. You can tell people the two times you were abducted, the circumstances, but also um, did you always feel that the publications you worked for did indeed have your back?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't go into a war zone at this point. Um, And I think it's been like this for the last probably 10 or 15 years where I wouldn't go into a war zone. Uh, without the backing of a publication that I, I respect and that I trust to look out for me if something goes wrong. And that's why I do most of my war reporting for the New York Times because, you know, both times I've, something has happened to me actually more than one time and more than a few times. Um, Every time something has happened to me, they've always done the right thing. And I think, you know, for example, the first time uh, I was taken was in a little village outside of Fallujah, and it was uh, April of 2004. I was with a New York Times colleague, and we had heard that a helicopter had gone down of American troops. And so we took a smuggler's route toward Fallujah, and this was right before the first siege of Fallujah. And we turned into this village and the entire village was full of insurgents and with their faces wrapped and rockets on their backs and, you know, shooting Kalashnikovs into the air. And, you know, and they pulled us out of the car. Initially, they pulled my colleague out of the car and I jumped out behind him because my logic was, well, if they take an American male alone, they'll kill him. So if they take him with a woman who I was, I claimed I was his wife, then they, they might not kill him because often in these situations, a woman kind of throws them off. And so we went together. They took us, our driver, translator, and basically questioned us at gunpoint for hours. And their main question was, are you with the American occupation? And we had to say over and over, no, we are not. We are journalists. We're here to tell your story. And eventually that was what got us got us out because we were able to convince them that we were journalists. Um, I think the fact that our driver, Waleed, uh, was also from the same tribe as most of the people who had us was a big help because in that part of the world, that really counts. Um, and so, you know, after... After essentially a day, we were released. Um, It went on. There were there were we were taken to another safe house. We were released and taken to another house and sort of retaken again. And it did go on for hours. But I think the gist of it was they wanted to make sure that we were journalists and not part of the occupation and not spies. Uh, In Libya in 2011, I was working on the front line with three other New York Times colleagues. Uh, Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Steve Farrell. And we were covering uh, fairly heavy combat. Uh, for me personally, I was covering fairly heavy combat for the two straight weeks. And on this day, on March 15th in 2011, we were working in Ajdabia, which was a town sort of uh, along the coast. And it was pretty clear the front line was about to fall. All of the journalists, uh, as a side note, covering the uprising in Libya, um, had snuck into Libya because obviously Gaddafi did not want journalists covering the popular uprising. So anyone who was working in eastern Libya had snuck in through Egypt. And so one of the great fears we as journalists had was that we would run into Gaddafi's troops because there was no free press under Gaddafi. Gaddafi repeatedly would say, if you see journalists kill them, they're all spies. And of course, the soldiers working on the ground were not educated. They had never been in a society with free press. So to them, we were all spies. So we were working in Ajdabia. It was clear the city was about to fall. We were covering the fighting, and we essentially stayed too long. And by the time we pulled out to the east to go to Benghazi, uh, Gaddafi's troops had flanked the desert and cut the road in front of us, and we drove directly into one of Qaddafi's checkpoints. And at that point, we were all pulled out of the car. Our driver jumped out and panicked and said, we're journalists, Uh, you know, please don't kill us. And immediately, the rebels that we were covering started opening fire on that checkpoint. And we were caught sort of in a wall of bullets. And each one of us was sort of fighting, struggling with one of Gaddafi's troops to, to, to get to cover. And there was a building around the sort of on the other side of the street that was a cement building. And we all made it to the other side of that cement building, except for our driver, who we never saw alive again. And once we made it to the other side of the building, um, we were, we were told to lie face down in the dirt. They took our passports off us and took some things from us. But the first thing they asked for were our passports. And they saw that we were American. They told us to lie face down in the dirt. And each one of us had a gun put to our heads and they were about to execute us. And at that moment, The commander walked over and said, you can't execute them. Wait, they're American, which is a very interesting point because it goes back to what we were just talking about. Why can't you execute an American, but you can execute someone else? Is it because you count on our foreign policy, you count on our president to speak up and defend American citizens in a way that you don't expect other governments to do? So that was sort of a question that really is resonating with me now, because as we see with the death of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, no one is really it it hasn't been swept under the rug in a way that I think a lot of leaders hoped it would be.
0: So uh, they put the gun to your head. And at this point, um, before the commander says this, um, were you thinking? Well, tell me what you were thinking at that point.
1: I mean, I was sure I was dead. There was not there was not a, a a sort of inkling in my body thinking that I would survive that. I was looking literally down the barrel of a gun and I was thinking, this is so depressing that I'm about to die in a place called Ajdabia. What is my hundred-year-old grandmother going to think? What is my husband going to think? I can't believe this is where I'm going to lose my life. And, you know, because it's not like being shot or being hit by a mortar round, you, you, I actually had time to think about it because I'm just staring at the barrel of a gun waiting to be executed. And um, I was sure that was it. When they decided, obviously, that they weren't going to execute us, they took my shoes off my feet, took the laces out of my shoes and tied me up. Uh, they tied my wrist behind my back and my ankles together. And they picked me up by the by sort of my shoulders and my ankles and started carrying me away. Of course, for me, I thought they were taking me to rape me because I, you know, I had no idea what would happen. And I was there tied up and the only woman in, amongst four of us. And I just thought, OK, this is, of course, where I get raped. Because throughout my career, of course, I've covered a lot of rape as a weapon of war. Um, so they put me in a vehicle uh, on the front line. And I was bound, of course, so I couldn't run away. And there were bullets and bombs and everything landing around us. And then they put Steve Farrell next to me. But before they sat him next to me, uh, one of Gaddafi's soldiers came and sat next to me and just punched me square in the face. Um, And then another soldier came over and put his phone to my ear and asked me to speak to his wife, uh, who kept telling me I was a dog and a donkey and insulting me. And I just kept saying, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist, I'm with the New York Times, I'm a journalist. And then Steve Farrell was put in the car with me. Uh, We were held on the front line for hours. Um, At some point, the fighting got so bad that we were able to convince them to let us lie underneath the cars, even though they weren't armored. Um, And eventually that night, uh, I guess they got word that they should keep us alive. And so they threw us in the back of a tank and moved us to another position, That tank ride was pretty brutal. Uh, We were blindfolded and tied up again. um, And I was groped, uh, being very sort of touched repeatedly by this one soldier who was pretty relentless. Uh, Steve Farrell also had the bayonet of a gun put in between his legs. Tyler was getting hit. Anthony was getting hit. We could hear each other, but we didn't want to speak to each other because we didn't want to get uh, further abused. And then um, the next day, we were thrown into the back of a pickup truck, uh, an open-back pickup truck, and driven six hours under the hot sun uh, to Cert, which was the headquarters, uh, Gaddafi's uh, sort of stronghold. And that uh, truck ride was brutal because, of course, the driver would slow down every time there was a crowd of pre- people. And we were these sort of medieval prisoners being paraded uh, all the way along that road to Cert. And so we were beaten every time the driver would slow down and and lynched almost, like sort of they would start pulling us out of the car and then the driver would speed up and that would happen sort of every 45 minutes to an hour uh, until we got to CERT. And then we were put in prison and kept overnight and then flown to Tripoli uh, the next day, which was also uh, tied to the walls of the plane. When we landed on the tarmac, we were... Uh, That was probably the worst beating that uh, we got. I, in that instance, was really uh, groped by several different men, and and I could hear my male colleagues getting uh, just really thumped and beaten. And then we were put in a sort of VIP prison and ostensibly handed over to the the foreign ministry or, or the Libyan government, as we were told. We don't really know who had us.
0: And then when were you let go?
1: Uh, three days after that, we were sort of shuttled twice. Um, We were, let's see, we were shuttled once to, we don't know where because we were blindfolded and thrown on the back of a car, but some official um, sort of office in the center of Tripoli one day, a few days after arriving, uh, and told we would be released. We were able to talk to this, this young woman, Yael, at the State Department um, who they were making arrangements for the passports that had been taken off my colleagues. And um, in the end, they it fell apart because the the Libyans were requiring an American senior diplomat to come pick us up. And Americans had already pulled out of Libya, so they would not, um, so they wouldn't release us. And then they sent us back into captivity. And of course, we assume that once the no-fly zone was implemented, that we would just get killed because one of the reasons why Gaddafi hadn't killed us is because the no-fly zone still hadn't been implemented, and and maybe we were a bargaining chip. But then that night we heard uh, what we assumed were NATO jets sort of flying over our heads, and we thought, okay, now we're really dead. And then um, two days later, we were just someone came to get us and threw us in a car and they moved us to what seemed like an embassy and they released us the next day to the Turks and the Turks drove us out.
0: And what do you do the, the, you know, the first 48 hours that you're, that you're free after that?
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, my husband, all of our partners were waiting for us in Tunisia. Um, first we crossed the border and we, um, we stopped in, we stopped in a place close to the, the Libyan-Tunisian uh, border. There was a Radisson Blue Hotel. I forgot the name of the place. And um, they had a doctor waiting there to give us a checkup and make sure that we weren't physically uh, harmed. Uh, they wanted to do that, and they also wanted to sort of debrief us before we went and met our loved ones. And that made sense because I think, you know, no one knew if we had been, if we had broken broken bones or if we if I had been raped or no one knew anything so I think that was sort of the first stop to just um, see a doctor and and debrief with the security team and we had nothing I mean they had stolen everything from us from the shoes off our feet to everything so they you know we went to like a sort of Walmart in in <laughs> in Tunisia, and we were like four kids running around buying. You know, we had no money, we had nothing. So, so the security guys who picked us up at the border, they they were like our parents and bought us all new, you know, socks and shoes and underwear and clothes to wear, uh, at least to go see. You know, for me to go see my husband, and then uh, our partners were waiting for us in Tunisia, and so that was lovely. Obviously, we had a, you know a nice hotel room and just spent time with our loved ones.
0: Was there a period after this where you thought, I'm not going to go back to another war zone?
1: No. I mean, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but no, I knew I would go back to a war zone. I just knew I had to sort of reevaluate how far forward I would go or sort of how I wanted to do it. I, I needed to sort of redraw the map of how I was going to continue covering war. And so it wasn't This this at this point, I had already been covering war for more than a decade. So I didn't I'm not the kind of person to just say, okay that's it. I'm going to walk away. That's just not the kind of person I am. I just knew that I'd have to sort of take some time, step back, think about it, process what I'd been through and then figure out how to move forward.
0: You know, obviously, you've just described a very harrowing experience. Journalists have been been abducted and killed for for years, forever, as long as there have been journalists. There, There's kind of a sense, I think, among some journalists that I've spoken to who, who do much more brave foreign reporting than I do, that even despite this, the Syrian war and the rise of ISIS has marked kind of a new era for journalists in conflict zones, and um, just because of the brutality and uh, the willingness of the different sides to, uh, to kill journalists um, without second thought. Is this something that you would agree with? And and if so, what do you think the Syrian war has done to um, your profession?
1: Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think ISIS, I think um, Al Qaeda, I think all of these groups now, they, they kidnap journalists, they kill journalists, and they do it. Um, not only for financial reasons, not only, but to to discourage us from reporting on our stories. And, you know, the problem is, is that governments are also doing it. You know, it's been proven that Marie Colvin was targeted by the Syrian government. She was killed. Um, You know, we have Khashoggi now, who was, you know, allegedly killed by the Saudi, you know, orchestrated by the MBS, the Saudi Crown Prince. Um, And it's with all of the mounting evidence there's still uh, a lot of people who don't want to take that seriously and i think you know the fact is when i first started out as a journalist i felt proud to be a journalist we had tv written on our on our cars on our flag jackets we felt we can go anywhere because we were journalists and people would respect that and and they wouldn't kill us but that's a joke i mean now you know the safest i feel is when i'm covered head to toe in in hijab so i look like a local woman you know i think Two weeks ago, I was in Yemen. I just left Yemen, and I, you know, I was terrified before I went there. Not terrified of the bombs. I was terrified because I didn't know if on the road from Aden to Sana'a if I would run into ISIS or Al-Qaeda. You know, and that is the reality, is that the scariest things are being on the road and running into a makeshift checkpoint, and then you're dead. Because with many of these groups, there is no negotiation. They kill you. And so I think the stakes have really changed. And I think whether it was the war in Syria or, you know, with the Arab Spring, um, there is this, the killing and slaughtering of journalists that just wasn't happening when I first started out, or at least not that I'm aware of.
0: Lindsay Adario's new book is called Of Love and War. It is a collection of some of her photographs over the past two decades in the countries we've been some of the countries we've been discussing and many others, as well as um, some really interesting written content about uh, her experience and the experience of journalists she works with. Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, for doing the podcast today and uh, good luck with the book.
1: Thank you so much for for taking the time. And that's our show for today.
0: I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs, and our theme music was composed by Doug Chase, thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios here in Berkeley. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at at askatslate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com.